Nothing you hear in this program constitutes investment advice. It is an expression of opinion only. This is Frisbees, Bulls and Bears. Talking money and markets. What's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Frisbees, Bulls and Bears with Dominic Frisbee. Welcome to Frisbee's Bulls and Bears with me, Dominic Frisbee. And it's at this time of year that we look forward to next year and decide what is going to happen. The first of our experts who is going to tell us is an old favourite of the show. He is, of course, Bob Hoy. Bob is um, the Chief Investment Strategist for Institutional Advisors, which produces a weekly uh, newsletter that gives you an overview uh, of the markets. Bob, welcome back to the show show um it's it's great to be talking to you happy christmas same to you and always good to be on the show good stuff bob now there are a number of kind of trends if you like investment trends towards next year pretty much everything has done incredibly well in 2010 uh, apart from the u.s dollar which is appears to be flattening out um do you see the the US dollar rising in 2011 and everything else falling are we going to get another 2008 or is this uh, trend that is mature going to continue onwards and upwards that's a timely one Dominic because as we've been calling it through most of the year it's the all one market where dollar US dollar index down and stocks corporate bonds and commodities up uh, all together and um the U.S. dollar in October reached what we call uh, a, a downside capitulation. Like it was, it was uh, urgent selling. And then the other part of a technical analysis we need for to get a bottom in the U.S. dollar was what we call the sequential buy, and that came in in the middle of November. And we've had stability in a slightly firming dollar index since. So this uh, hasn't tempered speculation too much because, for example, you have on the standard uh, sentiment figures for the U.S. stock market, uh, the S&P, for example, the sentiment figures are extremely bullish and similar to those accomplished at previous important highs for the stock market. In one, uh, uh, called the TRIN, T-R-I-N, indicator, which is uh, a comparison of upside and downside volumes, it's reached uh, an extreme not seen since, I think, 1965 and 1958. So uh, bullishness is at the moon. Then the other one is the momentum on all these plays. And we have the opposite, the good one, the upside exhaustion on the CRB commodity index, and which is compares to the downside capitulation on, on the dollar index. So what we're looking at here is uh, getting close to a very powerful speculative 
move. This was started with the end of the crash in New York markets in March of of '09. From which we figured you'd get uh, oh a 50% retracement in the stock market and up to in the quote we used very enthusiastic levels of speculation. And uh, what has happened is that I think a lot of the juice that the panicked U.S. administration has been putting into the markets, of course, if you put some stimulus into the system, it has to go into banks. That means Wall Street. And Wall Street will bid up whatever the hot action is rather than put the money into losing situations. And this has made the hot action extremely hot. And as we noted, it's got momentum and it's got uh, it's got the sentiment figures. So there's uh, it's been such a big move, Dominic, that... Uh, the uh, we have a an indicator that doesn't uh, click in very often, and uh, it was discovered. Uh, we sort of stumbled on it in the summer of 1998, and then in back testing it, realized that this indicator comes up and uh, gets up to a 1.21 level or higher, and that indicates that whatever, it doesn't matter what the speculation is, that the speculation, it will conclude in a month or two. So we're getting that signal now, and by the end of this week, we should know whether it's reached its maximum. We put out an alert on this one. It was at 1.25, and then last week it was 1.27. And, for example, 131 was the high with the 1987 blowout in the stock market. So what we're reading, Dominic, is that uh, this uh, speculative indicator, we call it the momentum peak forecaster because it comes in before the speculative move concludes. So like, for example, today we're seeing uh, further extension up in many of the grain commodities and cotton and uh, also in copper. So uh, the market's rolling. So uh, we should have a better idea next to the end of this week that the index has completed its signal. And then you would count one to two months after for the top in this. So this is what our outlook then gets to for 2011 is somewhere in the first part of the year, this terrific speculation runs its course and you're followed by fairly substantial uh, correction and liquidation of unsupportable positions. So it's going to be interesting. How are you positioning yourself now? I mean, I think kind of, I, I kind of think the same thing. This is this has gone too far, so to speak. And, yeah. and what goes too far has to come back. But I've been saying it's gone too far for for quite a long time. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, keep... I'm enjoying it going too far. Don't get me <laughs> wrong, but uh, you know, at some at some stage it has to come back. Like you say, it's a timing issue. Yeah, I have a lot of exposure in junior golds because it's been outstanding, um, and so from time to time I thought, well, I should sort of hedge that a bit by selling, you know, the GDX. 
Jay, that's the junior goal talk. But then each time I get stopped out. So, and, but on the other side, my main positions have been acting well. So I'm content, content to stay well exposed there. And then as our big move concludes somewhere in the next month or so, then uh, with using perhaps more short-term indicators, then start to to hedge the uh, long position in junior goals with some shorts elsewhere. So, is, is January, according to your seasonal studies, is that usually a good time to be long things? Well, we've got two things going here, Dominic. One is that there's always a move in the uh, small cap stocks relative to the big caps, where from about January, sorry, December, around December 17th, uh, you then have that outperformance of the small caps, and that generally helps. It shows a positive thing. So, and that usually ends maybe around the fifth or the seventh of, of of January. So, you've got the positive influence from that. Then also a number of uh, big bull moves have concluded in what we call the turn of the year window. So, uh, uh, for example. Uh, the raving mania in gold and silver in 1980. And that one, we backtracked our guide, that uh, peak momentum forecaster, uh, and it had its high two months before the top, and the top was January 21st of 1980. And then, of course, you had a long uh, (laughs) disaster in metals after that. But... On this one, on the indicator, it's I think it's generally working on all of the speculative items out there. And uh, we still consider that we're in a post-bubble contraction. The, uh, the topped out in the stock market in, in uh, October 07 and uh, crashed in 08, and this is sort of the biggest uh, big financial party in the market since 1929. And, or anyone's back, like 1873 was another magnificent bubble, and with the first one being the South Sea bubble in 1720. And these things are all very, quite, well, quite methodical in uh, ramping up the speculation, going through the transition to the contraction. So we've had the first crash, which was 08. We've had the first rebound, which has turned out, as the NBER points out, that the economy stopped its recession in June 2009. So we're thinking that maybe this is the first bull market, bull move for stocks and the first business recovery in your post bubble contraction world and so the uh, as I said the the speculation is so thick you can cut it with a knife so as this fails in the first quarter sometime then we would see that the post bubble contraction is resuming you have um, on the fixed income side uh, this has also gone through a series of disasters, uh, first of all, with the subprime mortgage bonds. Then in 08, it was the corporate bond market that got trashed. 
And then uh, the one after that, of course, been sovereign debt with Ireland and Greece, Spain, these sort of things. Policymakers are getting a bit unrealistic here. Uh, if you want to take it to absurdity, they can solve the European dilemma by having a German productive German workers work 50 hours a week and not retire until age 75 so that those working for the government in Spain or Greece can all retire nicely at 50, age 52. But you know that that's not going to happen. So I think the crunch will find European uh, community uh, becoming diminished with uh, maybe the best answer for Greece is just to step out of it, maybe for Spain as well, because uh, I think the whole thing's been an experiment in, 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 in bureaucracy anyways. Well, uh, <clears throat> on that subject, I think the best thing would, for the Germans would be to step out of it. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't thought of it that way, but you're right, Dominic. Sure, they can save themselves, Yeah, but they can't save the hangers-on. How long do post-bubble contractions go on for? Uh, usually 20 years. It does take that long, it seems, to wash out all of the unsupportable debt, for everyone to take the vow that they'll never borrow money again, and for every central banker to vow that they'll never be reckless again. And that takes, you know, a new generation of central bankers. Could you could you argue that we the post bubble contraction, uh, or that the bubble was popped, you know, with the dot com crash, and we're already ten years into the contraction? That's one way of looking at it, but the dot com bubble was unique because it did not have the equivalent move going on in in commodities and in real estate. That that was missing then. So that by the time you got up to 2007, 2008, you had a very good market for commodities and a lot of real estate speculation. And then here's the other telltale on the start of a of another Great Depression is that we all know that traditionally the stock market leads the business cycle. So you have a high in the stock market, you know, an identifiable bull market top. And then typically the recession would start a year later. So in 2007, the high for, sorry, 2000.com mania, the high was in March 2000, and the NBER decided that the recession started a year later in March 01. Whereas this time around, you had the high for the stock market in October 2007, and the high for the economy was in December of that year. So that's close. And in the past, it's been closer using the same NBR numbers on recessions and expansions. The high for the stock market in 1929 was in September. And the uh, business cycle peak was in uh, that August. And then going back to 1873, which also includes work by the NBER, so it's the same unit making the decision. And the stock market high was in New York was in September of 1873, magnificent mania. 
and the high, and the high for the business cycle was that October. So so when in at the end of a bubble, the business activity fails with the stock market, and that's what makes then this the probability of uh, it being a uh, post-bubble contraction, whereby every business recovery would be weak and each recession would be more severe than normal. And this would go on until, as I said, all speculators, all borrowers, all governments promise they'll never borrow money again. And then you're set up for then the next long expansion. It's irony. As a matter of fact, the financial markets are the best source of irony anywhere that one wants to read. <laughs> oh my goodness me, are they not? Are they? Aren't they just that? But let's look at the positive side, and this is where our work on the real price of gold comes in handy. That's where you take the price of gold, divide it by a consumer price index, or a wholesale price index, or as we run it regularly against our own commodity index. And at the height of each of these great financial manias from 1720 to 2007, the real price of gold had an important low. And then you then had a long recovery in the real price of gold, again um, influenced by the coming and going of the business cycle. Each recession, the real price of gold advances, and then each contraction or in each expansion, the real price of gold goes down. So, so far, the real price of gold it had its low on our index at 143 in May 2007, and that was uh, turning right with when the disaster in the credit markets began, and makes sense to me. So, as the real price of gold goes up, it means that the profit margins for gold miners are improving because. For example, lately you've had, because of severe cold weather, crude oil ramping up. But now that's a proxy for energy costs. So if, you're, if the price of gold is not staying ahead of energy costs, you're not making any money in the business. But So where this general real price of gold comes in is that as it goes up in a post-bubble contraction, Gold mining becomes more profitable than any other industry that's, that can be analyzed. So this is what we're looking for: is a 20-year um, bubble, or sorry, not a 20, a 20-year bull market for the real price of gold. And that started at the exceptional low for the gold's real price in 2007. So, so far we're looking at a three-year improvement in gold's real price. But, of course, with the party that came out of the crash in March of '09, gold price, uh, the real, has been set back a little. Well, it got up to over 500 and then it's around 350 now. So, But the cumulative effect on the real price has been very positive for senior gold mining stocks as well as the juniors. Do you think we're going to get a mania like 1980 at the end of all this? Yeah, it would be, I, I think, a ser series of manias. But, you know, historically, there is an interesting event have been the huge gold rushes, and they were traditionally uh, placer or alluvial gold. So you had the California gold rush in 1849, also in Australia. 
And that happened to be the end of that Great Depression, where you had a long rise in the real price, and you had a long trend of unemployment. So you had a lot of unemployed guys going out looking for gold, and then they'd find it. Same with 1895, the Klondike, and again, more discoveries in Australia. You had uh, worldwide unemployment and a worldwide very good price for gold, and so magic happened. But to imagine then, say, some years from now when you're probably eligible for a great gold rush based on a placer discovery, my guess is a lot of placer gold has been discovered. So, And then you now have uh, much better geological understanding and exploration techniques. So I think it's going to be a series of gold rushes on each of the advances in gold's real price. So now, whereby for next year, we would be looking for a firmer dollar, but by the end of the year, quite likely the real price will be higher than it is now and making the industry uh, that much more profitable. So, And again, you got also the problem, Dominic, is that the senior gold stock prices will go up and down with the senior stock exchange index is either London or or New York. So uh, one has to be a trader rather than a long-term investor. Um, I mean, I, th- I think you believe that this is uh, all going to end with public dem- demanding a return to sound currency. In other words, we're going to go back to some sort of using gold and perhaps silver as as money in some way or other once again. Yeah, I think so. The public, for example, in in the United States, this Tea Party movement is intended to restore government to the hands of the electorate, the public, and diminish the influence of certain interests and experts and all that sort of stuff. And, of course, it was emulated on the Boston Tea Party in 1775, preliminary to the American Revolution, against an authoritarian government in London. And it's amusing to think that perhaps with the excesses of government in England over the last while, that perhaps uh, England needs a Boston Tea Party. (laughs) Well, we kind of had, we had this weird thing where, (laughs) and <laughs> in, in in recently is we we kind of got our our government returning to fiscal sanity and and uh, cutting the deficit and all the rest of it and it turns out it, it, it it's looking now like it was a great big hoax uh, they're not delivering any of the, we i mean we had our november we had our worst ever numbers come out ever about government debt and deficits and and yeah uh, well the the public really hasn't got control of the apparatus of governing yet. It's still in the hands of the governing classes. And as as in the United States, as is in Canada, and it's not going to be a sudden process, it's going to be a lengthy process, but also part of the concept of the electorate assuming the controls of government and getting it out of the hands of vested interests is also the public... Uh, assuming control of its currency. And when they when it finally comes down to it, they'll realize that the best way 
of disciplining ambitious government is to have uh, the currency uh, on, on a gold standard equivalent to gold. And that is quite the discipline. And uh, so this is not going to turn overnight, but it's going to be a lengthy and fascinating process. I, I tell you what I, I see, Bob, is, is I see um, a big rise coming, uh, you know, like a trend, if you like, over the next 10 years or more, in people starting to use alternative non-government currencies more and more yeah. and more. And, and, you know, for government, as for trade that takes a place across borders or across the Internet, it's going to be really difficult for, for governments to police it. And, you know, gold is bound to to play a part in that because it's a, a forward, you know so that, that would be interesting but it's funny that you know that kind of move by the free market if you like could force governments to um improve their own currencies yes oh yeah they and, and let's face it the market is always the final decision maker on whether you have a good system or not and uh the and you've been really the experiment in authoritarian government using a depreciating currency has been on for a hundred years. Officially, one could say it started in 19 January 1914 when the Federal Reserve opened its doors, and when the UK came off the gold standard to print the money to pay for World War One, which never could have happened if they'd had to pay for it in gold. There you go. Precisely. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Bob, a last, final question for you. Um, now, I, you know, I get the impression that you like gold. In fact, I know you like gold, and I like gold uh, immensely. But there is this kind of delusion amongst uh, some gold bugs, and, I, you know, maybe that's too strong a word, but that, you know, we're somehow being really clever and that we've seen uh, this great big um, fraud, if you like, that's been perpetrated by governments and their currencies, and gold is the great... Um, antidote to the fraud, the way of protecting yourself. But really, like we said at the beginning of the show, it is just all one market syndrome. The US, US dollar is yeah. going down and every other asset except probably real estate is going up. And gold's just one of those assets that's, that's going up. So yeah. is it going up? I mean, how clever are we being? Are we, are we actually deluding ourselves and it's just going up because the dollar's being devalued or is it going up? For other no, reasons. it's beyond that because it's been going up in many currencies. That was the the change. And also on some days you can have gold going up in U.S. dollar terms as the U.S. dollar has been steady to firm against other currencies. And then the notion that gold is going to go to 10,000 or 35,000 or 100,000 is all based on extrapolating the rate of depreciation that's been going on for some time now. And when this big political change comes in, uh, the door will be shut on reckless central bankers. So it's best to stay with the real price of gold rather than conjecture that when they do go on to gold standard, it's going to be full, like every dollar issue is going to be backed by gold, and that's how they get to 35000 or who was it? Somebody uh, in excitement 08 came out with a $100,000 target. But in, in fact, it is such a massive change from the public up in demanding a sound currency that, for example, following the 1873 bubble, 
authorities gradually got to their senses and then the Grant uh, presidency issued a letter in 1875 saying that I think it was on a certain date in 1878 that the U.S. would redeem uh, every dollar, every one of the greenbacks. And they had a number of gold points. I think it was New York, Philadelphia, and New Orleans. And going into this date, when all of the dollars could be bought or sold by the Treasury, and uh, the writers were all saying there's not enough gold in the Treasury, but all that was needed was the concept that they would honor a gold standard and then it was a greater advantage of the folks to own paper money rather than gold. So in the first few days of the new system, they they uh, took in more gold and they were figuring there wouldn't be enough gold. So it's a belief that, first of all, that the treasury will stand by its obligation and you don't have to have a dollar in gold for every dollar that's floating around in the system. It's a new world, and uh, all the the street has to have is the confidence that the treasury will meet its obligation. And then everybody's happy. You're better off to own paper dollars than gold ones, knowing that the treasury and the government's not going to cheat you. Yeah, then you're in the next. You're into the next investment cycle. Then. Yeah, yeah. Happy times ahead, but it's going to be lumpy. <laughs> okay. Well. <laughs> Bob, thank you very much, so much for giving us your time and Happy New Year and, uh, um, you know, onwards and upwards for gold and gold juniors. And uh, your website, correct me if I'm wrong, is institutionaladvisors.com. That's correct. And uh, and we keep it fairly current. And then there's also older, uh, important uh, articles in there. And then we also keep a humor page where amusements are recorded. So. <laughs> of which there are plenty. <laughs> Yes, there are. Bob Hoy, thank you very much. Dominic, all the best for the new year. Frisbee's Bulls and Bears is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our forum at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com. To join our mailing list so you can be updated as soon as a new show is posted, please email info at dominicfrisbee.net or simply subscribe through iTunes.